It's the Too Dumb to Quit podcast with Jeremy McCall. He's dumb, way too dumb to even quit. So, you know, he has his own podcast now. Hey friends, uh, it's Tuesday. It's the uh, Too Dumb to Quit podcast and I am here. Normally we're on the tour bus and uh, today it's a little different. We're here at the University. We're at Vanderbilt University. We're at Vanderbilt, yeah. Yeah, here in Nashville and uh, talking to... I guarantee you the, the smartest and, uh, and the most in-depth person I've ever spoken to in my life, outside of the podcast even, <laughs> uh, very, very uh, excited today to be talking to, um, he's an assistant professor here, right, mm-hmm. at Vanderbilt, right. he's a gravitational wave astrophysicist, which we're going to ask him what exactly all that means, and uh, his name is uh, is Mr. Stephen Taylor. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you very much. Nice to see you, man. It's good to be here. Thank, Thank you, you uh, for putting up with me. It just took me 20 minutes to set this microphone up. Which, if you want to look like a moron in front of an astrophysicist, is really the place you want to do it. No, you so. want to go to go to a science conference and you'll see people changing over their laptops to give presentations. It <laughs> really? takes about 10 minutes. <laughs> so normally, I have to ask my six year old to help me uh, <laughs> get things online. So. Astrophysicist, uh, how long, how, let's, okay, let's go back, I guess, to the beginning. Where are you from? So I'm from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. Which is the... the homeland. It's, right? it's, the, it's the UK portion of Ireland. Okay. So Ireland, as your listeners may or may not know, is split between the Republic, yes. which is its own separate sovereign country, and yeah. then it's got this little bit of the United Kingdom at the top. Okay. Um, so I'm from there. And uh, lived there for the first 18 years of my life. 18 years. And then when did you, how do, how do you get into astrophysics? Is that something you've always been fascinated with? Is it something that... Yeah, I've always been fascinated with it. Um, I can trace it back probably to the last year of elementary school, yeah. which for me in the UK, that's 11 years old. Okay. And uh, we, you know, we go from elementary school, which we call primary school, into high school. And then, you know, we're just there until 18 years old. Okay. So we don't have a middle school. Yeah. Um, but in the last year, we had to do some projects, which were like, find an interesting subject and write a report on it. And then make some sort of, we also had like the space-related project, um, because it was coming up to the 30th anniversary of the Apollo missions, the yes. Apollo moon landing. Yeah. Uh, in 99. So... Uh, so I got really, really super into it. And I don't really know why. I think it was just a kind of cinematic sweep of space and the stars and black holes. Um, so instead of making one model or one little diorama for this thing, I made like five or six. Yeah. I made rockets. I made moon, landing, like moon landers. Uh, I got really into paper mache and making the moon surface out of paper mache. Wow. I got super into it and wrote a bunch of reports. Um, and then was like in heaven for that summer because it was the 30th anniversary of the moon landing. There was also a total solar eclipse coming across the UK in 1999. So I got really into it. And yeah, then in high school, um, I was still interested in astronomy, but then started to become more interested in the fundamental physics aspects of the universe. So there's astronomy, which is looking at the stars, understanding how things work and you know, looking at the properties of things in the night sky, but then fundamental physics is the nuts and bolts of the universe. Why is the universe the way it is? How do you make a universe in the first place? Yeah. So trying to combine the two things that I was interested in, I realized that there was actually a discipline called astrophysics. And so 
I got really, really interested in that and sort of led me from there. Yeah, I, want, I did physics at, at college. Okay. I specialized in astrophysics towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. So did you start... Uh, I'm going to have you get a little closer on that mic, mm. too. Just pull it into you. Sure. There you go. Um, so you got your undergrad, University of Oxford? That's right, yeah. And, um, and that was... Uh, uh, you, and then your graduate, you did your PhD in astronomy at the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge. That's right. Yeah, man. So, yeah, it was very. It was very Those lucky. are fancy names. I yeah, I don't know. Um, nobody, nobody like told me that I couldn't try these things or do it. My my family were very supportive of me just doing what I wanted. Yeah, and I I guess I must have been very arrogant or just naive. But I I applied to these places and. Did not apply really to anywhere else. I maybe applied to go to college at one other place, yeah. the local university. Um, but I thought if I'm going to leave, so home, you you did like local, like community college, no, and no, then no. Cambridge and Oxford. <laughs> no, uh, the, the the local university in uh, in Ireland, Queen's University in Belfast. Okay, it's, okay. it's a fantastic university. Of course, of course. Um, it really is. Like in in some aspects of astronomy, it's world leading. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. In in lots of like survey aspects and looking at the night sky, almost every night, taking snapshots of the night sky. They're yeah. hugely involved in that sort of thing. It's amazing. Um, so, but I, I got accepted to Oxford. I applied to Oxford because I'd heard more about it than Cambridge. Okay. And I don't know why. Uh, it's just I'd always heard Oxford in movies and TV shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and. You can only apply to one. So Oxford and Cambridge are so, I don't know, so in some ways stuffy that sure. you can only apply to one. If, you, if the other place finds out that you've applied to... To both? To, to both, then you're not allowed to... Really? You have to pick. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they still do that. Interesting. But it, yeah. So, um, and I applied to do physics. So in the UK education system, you don't have a liberal arts component. You study one okay. subject for your entire three or four year course. Wow. Yeah, so, and I really liked, you know, studying modern languages and history and yeah. uh, particularly history. It was, I was sad to give up doing formal studies in. Right. But uh, I studied physics for four years and then specialized in the final year in astrophysics and yeah. doing some research Which there. Which is really like the ultimate history. Yeah, really. the ultimate I mean, history of the universe. You know I mean? yeah. Unbelievable. Um, and then I, I really enjoyed it, so I wanted to continue doing it, so... So if you were if you were just going to speak to someone who has no idea of what an astrophysicist is mm-hmm. or astrophysics in general, uh, also known as me and, <laughs> and my friends, um, what is how, what's a good way to kind of lay it out? Like, the, here's what this is. Okay, so astrophysics is it's looking at lots of different phenomena in the universe you know, on large and small scales. Yeah. And then trying to connect them together with some common theory. Okay. Uh, so astrophysics, more than astronomy, is trying to get to the fundamentals of how the universe works. Mm. Um, what can the observations we make tell us about the fundamental nature of matter and space and time, even yeah. the structure of the universe? So, you know, uh, an astronomer might look at neutron stars. I might look at a, something like, it's called a pulsar. Mm. Pulsar is a really, really fast rotating neutron star that beams out these hugely energetic jets of radio waves. Okay. Um, so pulsar astronomers observe those, um, 
But then other scientists, maybe astrophysicists, will take those observations and then try to fit those observations to theoretical to models theory. and say, okay, this explains this part, and it also explains another set of observations we've made. We've got some sort of theory emerging wow. from these observations. Pulsars, Wasn't there just like a big explosion that was like the brightest light ever recorded? Oh, yeah, there, there are a couple of like really, really bright objects that have happened recently. Yeah. So there are these objects called fast radio bursts. Okay. And fast radio bursts are like millisecond bursts of radio waves that come from sound outside of the galaxy. Like sound frequencies? Uh, radio, so radio waves are light, so you won't have any sound associated right, with right. them. Um, but they're much longer, okay. much longer wavelength. than you couldn't see them with, with visible light, for example. Gotcha. But we can pick them up with radio telescopes. We've got these dishes that just point out in space. Uh, we can pick up these, these huge bursts of radiation. And we still don't really know what produces these fast radio bursts. Okay. Um, there are, you know, lots and lots of them being discovered all of the time. And this only really kicked off about 10 or 12 years ago, like yeah. the study of these things. And they're like one of the biggest mysteries in astronomy at the moment. Really? Where do they come from? Do they repeat? Turns out some of them repeat. Like there are bursts and then maybe a little while later you'll have another burst. But it doesn't seem to be regular. Wow. So nobody really knows. There are lots of these. Like there are theories that they're associated with neutron stars. Yeah. Neutron stars are the final stage of matter before it collapses to a black hole. Okay. If you imagine like taking... If you take a, a spoonful of a neutron star material, it would weigh as much as the Empire State Building. So that's you're dealing with like nuclear densities. It's unfathomable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane. A uh, neutron star, you form it in a star explosion, like mm-hmm. when a star reaches the end of its life, it collapses in on itself and forms a super dense core okay. of essentially almost neutrons. And uh, it's like taking the entire sun squeezing it into something the size of Los Angeles. <laughs> and then for a pulsar, you'll whip that as fast as a kitchen blender. So it's something that's rotating like hun- maybe hundreds of times a second and then sending out these beams of radiation, which we pick up and detect. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. We have thousands of these pulsars, and we're starting to understand them a lot more than we did. So you're studying them by, by using satellites or... or you're, you're using information taken from the waves, the brightness, mm-hmm. the density, yep. that kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. So there are radio telescopes on Earth, but there are lots of other types of telescopes as well. There are visible telescopes, like simple optical telescopes. Right. You imagine the kind of telescope you got as a kid, maybe. Yeah. And then you expand that to... Mine was um, po- the difference between you and me, mine was pointed at the neighbor girl's <laughs> house. <laughs> we might have had different <laughs> Yeah, so you, you take a, a telescope like that and then you expand that to a multi-billion dollar experiment. Wow. And they have these, these satellites as well in space that are looking at gamma rays, X-rays. You can look at the universe across the entire spectrum of electromagnetic waves. Yeah. And the human eye can only see a small sliver of that. But if we expand our view with you know, different pieces of technology, then you get this huge portrait of what the universe is like. So we were talking, uh, as I was trying to figure out this, uh, this laptop, we were talking uh, before we popped on here about um, the news mm-hmm. and how... I have this conversation a lot. My friends all think I'm a space nerd, but I, I, I don't... I'm so infatuated with it because it's... Space to me is so... And the universe is so much weirder 
than any like science fiction you could ever think of. Like every day, and I get these alerts to you know my phone, mm-hmm. which is just like, oh well, NASA today saw that um, there's actually there's galaxies battling out in the, the universe, and I'm like, mm-hmm. how is this not? You know, and they're talking about you know whatever on television, you know politics or whatever, but. It's like, how is this not absolutely all over the news? Like, I I saw this thing about um, a picture that the Hubble telescope just sent Mm. from 135 million light years away. Mm. That's something that we we built, Mm -hmm. sent into outer space. When did Hubble go up? I mean, Hubble uh, went up in the early 90s. Early 90s. It it didn't it didn't work for a little bit. Right, and they came back on. they, They fixed it. Yeah, they actually could go up to Hubble in the space shuttle and fix the optics. And now you know it's incredible. And now it's 135 million light years away. No, Hubble is... Oh, that's taking the pictures. Hubble is taking the pictures of 135 million. Of 135, that's right. It's, uh, Hubble's still in Earth orbit. Okay. And actually, the, so the Hubble Space Telescope has vastly gone beyond its lifetime yeah. of what it was expected to do. So it's just this incredible instrument. And one of the astronomers who managed the Hubble Space Telescope science operations yeah. is, is at Vanderbilt. Really? A professor called Bob O'Dell. And he was in charge of uh, Hubble Space Telescope like science operations for a while. Well, and then, so you've got that. You've got and the amazing minds that, that you guys have to be able to figure these things out and work on these things. Like uh, we were talking also about the Voyager. Uh huh. There was what two Voyagers launched in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Supposed to last like five years. Yeah, it's like you'd have you have more powerful technology probably in your cell phone than right or a cell phone from maybe ten to fifteen years ago than Voyager had, and it's no longer now in our solar system. It's gone outside the solar system, yeah, and it's a difficult. Forty-two years later, yeah, yeah, it takes <laughs> and a long it's time. Still sending us information, right? Yeah, it's um, so Voyager had to do this interesting trajectory where it picked up speed by going into orbit around yeah. planets. They do this sometimes in movies where you have a gravity assist. Right. And you'll orbit around, and then you'll slingshot yourself out. So sure. that's how, that's how uh, Voyager picked up speed. It's unbelievable. It is incredible that they can do these maneuvers. Um, and, yeah, it's still sending back information. When I, was at, so when I was at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena for a couple of years, they have this great art display, which is also a scientific uh, heads-up display. Uh-huh. And it's... It's essentially a sequence of LED lights that forms a waterfall of information. So you'll be looking at this display, and whenever information from a satellite comes in, you'll see this huge cascade of LED lights, and that represents the information and the data coming in. Wow. And Voyager occasionally flickers up, and you see that it is still sending in a tiny amount of data. Uh, It's a tiny little trickle. Yeah. It takes a long time for that information to get to us. Yeah. and the way they, they say it's outside of the solar system is just because it's, it's gone beyond the heliosphere, which is sort of this right. sheath of magnetism formed by the sun around the planets. They said that the, they, they believed it, didn't they originally believe it to be round? And, and when, when it went through, they, they discovered that there's an edge, edge to it? Or? Well, yeah, so I'm not totally an expert on this, but it has, it has this elongated shape, okay. I believe. Yeah. Um, and so saying you're, you're, you're getting out of the solar system, it's like kind of a long, drawn-out process. You, sure. you don't hit a hard edge. Yeah. Um, so there have been various reports. Like Voyager has left the solar system, and then it happens again six months later. It's crazy. Uh, it just takes a so while. So does it come back in numbers? Is it coming back in like a binary form of, of Essentially, information? Essentially, yeah. It's coming back, it's coming back as um, 
as radio waves, as, and it's, wow. sent, it's sent back to a lot of telescopes across the Earth. JPL is a particularly big center. It's sometimes called the center of the universe because all of the probe data from all NASA satellites and all U.S. satellites and even some foreign satellites, I think, are, uh, are funneled through JPL. Through one place. And where is that located? Well, that so JPL is in La Cañera Flint Ridge, just above Pasadena. Okay. Uh, just outside L.A. And, but it's really gathering information from something called the Deep Space Network. Okay. The Deep Space Network is three radio telescopes uh, spread across the globe. One of them is just outside L.A., um, another is in Madrid. Another is in Canberra in Australia. Okay. And they kind of cover the globe wow. um, and gather this information. So, um, man, that just blows my mind. It blows um, my mind, too. But it's madness that it's just not everywhere. And yeah. like when they were talking about the, uh, and I know I'm jumping around, but it's, no. it's based totally on... Um, my no understanding whatsoever of, of it other than just being fascinated by it. Mm. Um, I'm kind of like my uh, six-year-old really where I'm just like, wow, that's incredible. But they were talking about the, um, the liquid on um, Titan. Right. Moon Titan. Yeah. Which is, is that Saturn's moon or Jupiter? You're going to catch me out here. I, <laughs> is it Saturn? I don't know. Right? So I should know up. that. I think it's actually Saturn. Is it Saturn's moon? I think it's Saturn. Titan. Yeah, you nailed it, Saturn. You know what's up. I knew that all along. Yeah, it's just of course. A test. Yeah, uh, yeah. The fact that there's like liquid material under there, and the fact that that could possibly host, you know, we don't know what's under there. Sure. Um, I mean, you would think there would have to be. I mean, there's got to be something under there, right? I mean, whether it's hard or not life that we know, but yeah. bacteria or it's possible microbes. It's or, possible. Yeah. Um, you know, usually the question is: Is there life somewhere in the universe? And I would say almost. Yeah, it has to be a mathematical... Yeah. You know, it's ludicrous if there's not microbial life somewhere else in the universe, at least. Right. Do, uh, you, think, do you think there's intelligent life? I have, no way of, I have no way of knowing that. But it, yeah. seems, it seems strange that we're such a fluke otherwise. Yeah. Um, so it's not my SETI and that whole mission to find life elsewhere. Yeah. It's not my area of expertise, but it just seems bizarre if we were the only... Yeah. Type of life. Kind of sad, really. Yeah. It's, I, even if there is intelligent life, I doubt we would actually find it. I doubt yeah. we would actually communicate. We're having a it. tough time finding it here. That's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Intelligent life, we just regard ourselves as intelligent. Sure, exactly. Uh, but we, we might not even be on the scale of intelligence to another, to another being. Right. Well, when you look at the ocean, yeah. and the ocean's full of shit that we don't know anything right. about. You know? We don't really know what intelligence is either. Yeah. We don't really know if consciousness is some sort of emergent phenomenon. See, now, this is, this is where I get really intrigued. So I, I've, I've kind of dabbled in reading about different forms of consciousness mm. and really what consciousness is. And um, there's a theory about, like, multidimensional, like, for every... And I don't know if it's a... I don't know if it's a theory, but it's an idea of for every choice that you're making, there's a reaction to a choice. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? You know what I know what you, yeah. So this this has come out of quantum theory and, and quantum mechanics. Right. And it's it's really taken the wider public imagination by storm. Yeah. Uh, but basically it says that to solve the equations of quantum mechanics, you end up with something called a wave function. Now, a wave function is not something you could observe. It's sort of a mathematical description of a system. 
And a wave function attaches probabilities to certain outcomes, to certain states of a quantum system. Okay. And then when a system is observed, uh, some theories or some interpretations of quantum mechanics say that the wave function is collapsed. So out of all of those probabilities of events or choices or states, uh, you crystallize to one particular configuration. Hmm. Um, and if you do the experiment many, many times, uh, the probabilities you initially attached to the states will, you know, will be associated with that. So if you say one state has a 0.9 probability, do the experiment 100 times, you'll get that outcome maybe 90 times. Wow. Um, but people have interpreted that as saying, okay, it's possible we have a multiverse. Every choice you make, every particular, you know, even, even if I, you know, knock over this cup, there's a chance that, you know, it'll destroy your computer or it'll just roll onto the floor. Right. It'll do a bunch of things. Um, but that's only one interpretation of quantum mechanics. Yeah. There, are, there are others. The multiverse is particularly elegant because it says, you know, every time that a decision is made or a particle interacts with another particle, you just branch off and you create some other separate universe. Right. Um, now, I don't know what that says about consciousness. Uh, there are, I'm sure, lots of philosophers who like to piggyback on quantum mechanics mm-hmm. and try to, I don't know, try to graft some sort of scientific veneer onto their particular brand of philosophy. Sure. Um, uh, Deepak Chopra comes to mind, uh, who I'm sure he, I think he likes to talk about quantum mechanics in his own particular way, but I'm not sure uh, he's studied it. In yeah. any great detail. Well, you find that a lot too, especially in like life philosophies, where uh, a lot there's a lot of picking and choosing of like, oh, this works well with what mm. I'm talking about. Exactly. You, know, you find it with the Bible, with anything, you know, stoicism yeah. or anything. Um, it. Uh, do you find? Do you get frustrated? Like, are there are there interferences between those kinds of things, like quantum physics? Mm. And then astrophysics, where it's like you might, if quantum physics is talking about one thing, are there things that coincide with that where you're like, that's that's not even within the realm of possibility based on the way astrophysics works? I mean, do they collide? They do collide, yeah. So astrophysics covers a huge range of physics, like from, from the quantum realm up to giant cosmo- like universal scales. Yeah. Um, and the study of the universe on large scales is called cosmology. So yeah. that's the realm of like Stephen Hawking and Einstein. Okay. Um, yeah, so the neutron stars I was talking about earlier, they really are, when you get down to it, quantum systems because you have to take into account that whenever atoms are squashed an incredible amount by their own gravity, by the neutron star's gravity, mm-hmm. the only thing that keeps them apart uh, and keeps them collapsing into a black hole is some sort of quantum pressure. Uh, the fact that there's something called the Pauli exclusion principle that says that certain types of particles cannot occupy the same state at the same time. And so they generate this kind of resistive pressure to being squashed. That's the only thing that keeps objects like white dwarfs or neutron stars from just collapsing into a black hole, is a quantum pressure. Okay. So astrophysics covers that kind of quantum theory. And so any type of observations we make of neutron stars or pulsars or other things uh, can feed back into our understanding of the equations of nuclear matter and quantum physics. So black holes is one of your specialties. Black holes is what I do on a day-in, day-out basis, yeah. yeah. So 
Um, explain, I mean, if you can, in, in terms for a guitar playing songwriter, what a black hole is, like what it is. I know what I've seen in, in movies. I know what, yeah. you know, but like what is a black hole by, def- by definition of what you do? Well, a guitar playing musician might have, there's more po- poetry to black holes when you get down to the, where the theory breaks down, actually. Okay. Because we still don't understand where, uh, where the theories of black holes break down and yeah. how to explain the theory of black holes at their centers. But having said that, Black holes are essentially punctures in the fabric of space and time. That uh, that's insane. It's insane already. That's, that statement, yeah, is yeah. is pretty cool. It's a puncture in space and time. Yes, and uh, the reason why they're called black holes is because there's a region around them called the event horizon, um, where if you passed by it and passed into that region, you wouldn't really notice anything. But for someone looking at you from a far distance away, they would suddenly see the image of you, sort of a shadow image of you suddenly freeze. And that you wouldn't be able to get any other information from the person that's just past the event horizon. Essentially, it's the region of no return. So as fast as you might go, as, as much fuel as you might spend, you cannot escape. Not even light can escape the black hole once you pass over the event horizon. That's how strong the gravity is. That's insane. So that's why they're, that's why they're called black holes. And so, when when something enters that, mm-hmm. is it destroyed? Good question. We don't know. Um, so we can't send a probe into a black hole. We don't have the technology to send something that far that quickly yet. Um, we also can't see anything that comes out of a black hole, right? And we can't follow its passage as it goes into the event horizon. Uh, the theory is that you wouldn't notice any difference, really, if you passed over the event horizon until you got super close to what's called the singularity. The singularity is the point of infinite density at the center of a black hole. And once you get close to that, the strength of gravity is such that you would get, on the technical phrase, spaghettified. So (laughs) the strength of gravity on your feet would be a huge amount stronger than the strength of gravity on your head. And so you get stretched and elongated into this huge thing, and yes, you would get destroyed. So I've heard, I've heard a theory of like, uh, you know, when you're watching a ship, uh, like sail out to sea, they get smaller, mm-hmm. right? But it doesn't; it's not actually disappearing; it's mm-hmm. just moving away from you. And I heard somebody talking about that with black holes, where, and I don't know if this is a theory or if this was just this guy's theory. I don't even, I don't even know who it was, but I uh, was talking about something entering that of it being more of. What if it was going somewhere else? Oh, I see. Yeah, so there are, there are some theories, and we have no way to validate these theories because sure. they're just math at the moment, but there are some theories that every black hole leads to a white hole on the other side. So it might be spitting material out across the universe, or it might be birthing a new universe. Okay. So there, there are some theories that the universe, our Big Bang, was really the outcome of a black hole from another universe spitting spitting material and energy Um, we don't know yet so it's a nice theory if it's true because it gives us an explanation of where the Big Bang came from and what initiated it it's amazing did you watch that um, there's a documentary called The One Strange Rock no I didn't see did you watch that that? no I think it's on it's either HBO or Netflix but um, Will Smith um, narrated it Mm. and um, it talks about a view of Earth, um, humanity, philosophy, 
and all the things from an astronaut's perspective. So the, I think they talked to like eight astronauts, mm. and it was like they were talking about the some of the depression that these astronauts are treated for when they come home based on seeing... There's something they said um, about you actually being able to see the entire planet oh, yeah. that causes a, uh, a loss of self where you're like, I don't, how do I matter kind of a thing. Yeah, you know? it creates this... I've heard that it creates this sense of insignificance and also like a, a spiritual feeling and a connection yeah. to everyone down on the planet because if you if you're looking down on the planet then you're looking down on the location where every single genius yeah. or musician everything we know everything we know every piece of human history no matter how insignificant seeming happened down there yeah um, and this is actually a paraphrasing of something Carl Sagan said the famous Carl Sagan um, who he did the um, he was a scientist at Cornell for a long time okay was uh a huge force behind the SETI mission to look for extraterrestrial life. Yeah. And uh, he made the Cosmos TV show back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Which is now being rebooted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Carl Sagan is one of the biggest... Uh, he was one of the biggest voices in science communication. And he said he, he was behind the whole pale blue dot philosophy. Yeah. That when we see pictures from probes that look back on Earth, the, you know, the, the Earth just looks like this very small, tiny speck of light. Yeah. But it contains everything. Everything we know about the universe and humanity was on that pale blue dot. Mm. It makes you feel very humbled by it. Yeah. I imagine you have to deal with that. I mean, if you were looking at Earth from a black hole, it's, I mean, it, it would just, I mean, it's just a flicker of light. You wouldn't even see the You wouldn't see it. You might not even see the sun. The sun is, it's pretty average star wow. on the outskirts of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is a pretty average galaxy. It's not even one of the bigger galaxies. Um, like a JV, uh, <laughs> like yeah. a junior varsity galaxy. It's just, uh, we're just, uh, yeah, so this, it's amazing that we understand anything about the universe. Well, I don't, but it's amazing that you do. Well, it's, I don't and understand people, how, you know, if someone asked me how does a cell phone work in detail, I, I I'm don't not get sure it at I all. Can, I'm not sure I could give that, de- I understand the physics behind it. Sure. But I don't understand the engineering or the electronics. That's the thing, um, there's actually a couple comedy bits about it. Louis C.K. did one where... Um, he was like, you know, you talk to you talk to people who go, uh, you know, Verizon sucks, and it's like, wait, 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 why? This is ama- This is like Star Trek shit You've got a in magic your hand. Box. Yeah, it's amazing. And she's like, yeah. well, one time it was weird for a minute, and he's like, it's got to go to space. I know. Can you give it a second? You know. <laughs> um, but like, it, I think especially coming from like a world where everything was kind of used to be able to work on your own car. You know what I mean? You used to be able... Everything was kind of... Not, I don't want to say dumbed down, but it was more uh, digestible. Like, you could look at a Chevy 350 yeah. and go, oh, well, I need to replace the starter or the carburetor. Yeah. And you might not know how those work, but it was digestible. And yeah. now, it just seems like nothing's digestible. I mean... It's true. It's, it's, and it's happened within science and academia, too. Because it used to be that a reasonably intelligent, you know admittedly rich person in the 18th century or 19th century could could know pretty much all there is to know about science and even history at the time wow. because we didn't you know it was, it was relatively that. straightforward and then <laughs> and then the 20th century happened and then you had relativity by einstein quantum physics right lots of weird condensed matter physics laser physics and so it's required 
ever more specialization within science. So it's becoming more difficult to communicate with colleagues across disciplines. And we've realized that. So there are now like cross-disciplinary communications that are attempted. We want to try to build bridges between even different parts of a physics department right? because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. They might have discovered something in their techniques or their knowledge that's useful in another part of knowledge. Yeah. And that's how we connect all of physics together, these kinds of collaborations. So you worked... um so you worked at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory That's correct. in Pasadena. Yeah. And then and you were there for a couple of years? I was there for like two to three years as a what's okay. called a postdoctoral fellow. And then you went to the uh, California Institute of Technology. Yeah, which is it's only a few miles away. Okay. So Caltech and JPL, they're connected. Caltech actually manages JPL on behalf of NASA. So NASA gotcha. NASA sort of gives control of JPL to Caltech, and that's who manages it. So there's a very strong connection between the two institutions. And then uh, found uh, found yourself here at Vanderbilt. Yeah, found uh, you know went on the faculty job hunt. Yeah, and f- fortunately Vanderbilt was was hiring at the time, and was very very lucky to get a job offer from Vanderbilt. It's wonderful. How do you like Nashville? I'm loving it. Loving yeah, it. my wife and I are really super happy to be here. Yeah, it's um, a great city, man. Yeah, and it's. I'm seeing lots of construction everywhere. And whenever you see that in a city, I think that's a really great sign. Yeah. That there's it, so much investment happening. Yeah. I was thinking about that actually on the way down here. Because like I said, we normally do this on the bus, but Vanderbilt is, is, a, uh, is a little bit of a, um, of a cluster when it comes to the roads and the parking uh-huh. and stuff of getting, just because there is so much construction. Yeah. But I was thinking, I was like, my son loves playing that game, uh, Pocket City, you know, like Sim City. Oh, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I'm like, Nashville is like... A six-year-old created a city and just forgot to put roads and parking and shit in because it's just everything's just you know stacked on know, each other right. right now. Well, I I did hear that they tried they tried to get some sort of public transport bill yeah. passed, but they it's like fly. but the ideas that come there like uh, they were talking the last mayor who's a felon now she um, she wanted to do an underground subway uh-huh. that like experts were saying this is going to be this is going to cost a billion dollars and it's going to be outdated by the time it opens. You know, so it was like it didn't make any sense, mm. and I know they tried to do the trolley car system that right. would get people in and out. Right. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but uh, something's got to give. You know, yeah. it's getting crazy, but it's such a great place to live. Yeah, such it's, a great place to it's been awesome to be a part of the community. Yeah, um, my wife was particularly excited uh, about Nashville, so she. What does she do? So she's currently studying for emergency management disaster response, which Whoa. is the kind of. Things that FEMA takes care of. Yeah. Um, where you have to respond to some sort of disaster. Hurricanes, tornadoes. Yeah. And you yeah, have yeah. to manage aid being given to some region. You have to manage doctors going across borders, even if there's some sort of cross-border situation. Wow. And she's she's working at Vanderbilt at the moment as, a, as an intern in their department. That's amazing. But she, yeah, she has lots of interests. She also sings. Yeah. And so she was in this, uh, she was in LA's premier female choir Really? Called Vox Femina. Yeah, she's a soprano too. Wow. Uh, if that means... Like the gangster? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got that terminology right. She's a soprano too in a choir. Okay. So she's... I mean, she sings. I can't go out to karaoke with her. I've gone out to karaoke a few times with her. Yeah? She puts She me kicks in. your ass? Oh, yeah. I can't, <laughs> I can't sing at all. It's embarrassing. What if you pull up like a good... Like an old Irish song or something, you know? No, no. I don't even have that range. No? Uh, I can do, I can do uh, Kenny Rogers, The Gambler, and that's about it. Dude, that's all you need here, man. Yeah. 
I know. There's uh, guys playing downtown. That's all they've got. <laughs> but yeah, she's she's really super happy to be here. Uh, just the vibrancy of the city, yeah. the energy. Yeah. That something coming from LA was really we were really looking for that kind of the city's the city's awake and it's it's yeah. full of energy. That's yeah, doing. and I, I think that there's so much I think you know, there's like hundred and fifty songwriters or singers or whatever move here a day. Something yeah. like that. It's like six, seven hundred a week. And um I think, you know, it's kind of like because Los Angeles always seems a little bitter to me you know you get it's 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 a it's a shiny star with a little oh, yeah. dirt on the halo there's a, there's you a little know? bit of seediness yeah yeah and here it doesn't the bitterness hasn't quite set in yet mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's yeah. still every very hopeful and very yeah you know everybody has got big dreams and big aspirations yeah. you've and, got the southern hospitality as well and, those, and then the food's great yes the food's amazing yes the food is amazing uh are you a soul food guy you like soul food so if that means have I tried the hot chicken and that sort of thing? Yeah. Uh, I've tr- I tried Howdy Bees, yeah. I tried Howdy Bees. All right, so I'm going to take it? you, because you and me are best friends now. You don't know this, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to take you to a place. There's a place here called Silver Sands. Okay. And um, it is not on any tourist map in town. It's been here since the, uh, I want to say the early 60s, okay. late 50s. Same family owns it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you can eat anything there from hog jaw to uh, oxtail to uh, I would just recommend the chicken. The chicken's amazing. Yeah. It and so good. I go in there uh, and I'm going to take you and your wife. We have to go have. We'd love to. That sounds sands. amazing. Yeah. Hot sauce, Kool-Aid, whatever you want, man. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Is this one of these places that's been on like diners, drive-ins and dives? It should be if it hasn't. I don't yeah. know if it has. I know that Arnold's has. Have you been to Arnold's I've here? been to Arnold's, no. So it's a meat and three, right? Okay. Which is you pick your meat and three sides. Gotcha. Right? Uh, and Arnold's is famous. Arnold's, there's a line down the door. It's like the Pancake Pantry. Have you been mm-hmm. the, around the corner yet? That's Pancake. in Hillsborough Village. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that. So there's a line out the door for pancakes, uh-huh. you know, which... I get it. It's it's like going to Portland. There's a Voodoo Donuts there, or whatever, and there's a line down the block. It's it's a donut at the end of the day, you know. <laughs> fucking stand in line to get a pancake, but um, but I, I got to take you to, to Soul Food. That's my favorite place to take people. That sounds amazing. So yeah, yeah. we'll have to go. Um, and I know that you're on a time crunch, but so based on all of these things, and we have to have you on. We have to have a part two because I'd love to, I, yeah. just I didn't even touch on what I, I actually do. On I the know. Day, <laughs> um, but w- with what you know, with what you study, is there a philosophy? Is it what, like what life? Is there a life? Is there a spiritual philosophy? Is there something in you uh, that you live by that you? Because this, this is a crazy difficult industry. Hmm. So the stressing, I would imagine the stress and anxiety and stuff like that. Like, how do you combat that? What is your What is your approach to living? That's a really great question, and I'm not sure I have one yet. But yeah. um, it, is, it is quite stressful, and you go through a lot of job insecurity in academia. Nowhere near as insecure as the music industry no. or acting. Well, be. I don't know about that. Uh, but, yeah, so the people that want to do a, become a professor yeah. or even do science, they, at some point you realize that the chances of that happening might not be good because it's like a pyramid. Right. There are lots of people at the base level who study it, and then there are only a few positions at the top. So it can be heartbreaking, and you just have to, you have to take a very philosophical approach to it, that there are other things and interesting in the world. Academia and science is not the only thing. There are right. lots of you know, 
humans have generated lots of interesting things to study. Um, and in terms of what keeps me grounded, my wife keeps me grounded, my family keeps me grounded. Yeah. Like even if I have a really terrible day at work, if I'm stressed out, I can go home and just relax and be with her. Yeah. Um, going to the gym helps as well. Yeah. Like you need to, if you, if you need some sort of endorphin spike, yeah. uh, lifting heavy weights can help that. And I, I like to do that. And just a general philosophy of, you know, que sera, because you can't really plan too far down the road. Yeah. Um, if you're not enjoying yourself or what you're doing, then what's the point? Exactly. You know, uh, so I, I just try to keep things in perspective. Uh, there are lots of interesting things to do. If something doesn't work out, try another thing. Right. Um, it's not, you know, the important thing is that you keep trying, you keep going after your goals, you keep generating new goals if yeah. old goals don't work out. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe in giving up. Absolutely. Uh, you have to just keep going. Well, and the thing that I liked is that out of the gate, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm going to Oxford, Cambridge. That's you know? arrogance. But, yeah, <laughs> that's but, the arrogance of youth. You know, but it's, there's something to that, too, though. And that's, that's why the podcast is called Too Dumb to Quit, because that's, mm. that's been my entire career has been in when I should have stopped, when it was like, man, this is bad. Like, I need to quit. But do you ever look back on something and think, how did that even work out? Yes, for me? Yeah. every every fucking day, yeah. every day. I it's, mean, and and things find you. My wife and I were talking about it the other day. I was like, when you know you're doing the right thing that you're supposed to be doing, and you're stressed about money, money finds you when you need it. You know what I mean? Like you never go hungry. It's right. when you're chasing things that aren't what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. You know what I mean? But it's like when you're on the right path, you're doing the right things, you're busting your ass. Everything seems to show up. Mm. Yeah. You know? Everything seems to work out things in a work weird out, way. Well, yeah, things work out the way they're supposed to. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean anything deep or, or spiritual about that, but something comes along, one door closes, another opens. Right. And you just have to look at it like that. Just keep, just keep hustling. And, and you and get trying. a lot of luck when you work hard. Yes. Yeah, working the opportunities, hard. opportunities, you know? Being, being smart or being talented will only get you so far. Yeah. It's mostly about working hard. Absolutely. And, and I will say, be nice as well. Yeah. Like, there are really talented, really smart people that are not nice, and yes. nobody wants to work with them. Exactly. So the most important thing is to be kind. I think. Yeah. Be a good person. Well, we'll end on that. I know you got to run. Be kind. Be a good person. Too dumb to quit. We are definitely going to get... Uh, Mr. Steven back on the show because I want to talk about what you actually do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get I'm to so that. fascinated by you that I'm like just uh, that I've wasted I'd an hour. But thanks, uh, yeah, dude, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Too dumb to quit. Is there anywhere where people can check uh, more of your stuff out? I know you've got some stuff on YouTube, some of your chats. Yeah, if you go onto the Vanderbilt website, you'll find me that listed there under the faculty. That'll link you to my personal website as well. Yes, and that'll explain a little bit more about what I do. I might be on YouTube giving a couple of lectures, um, and I'm occasionally on Twitter. So I'm on yeah. there too. What's your Twitter handle? Astro Steven. Astro Steven. Steven with a PH. Okay. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's Dr. Steven Taylor here at uh, Vanderbilt, astrophysicist and a great dude, and uh, going to be a soul food fan here shortly because <laughs> I'm going to take him to eat. Thank you so much, man. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Uh,